Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, in particular, as we continue our study, we're in the midst of a couple of really difficult sections or chapters in Ecclesiastes to understand, uh, let alone uh, comprehend what exactly it is, the message of the Koheleth, the convener of the assembly, the writer, the one who is now standing before God's people, helping them understand what life is all about, answering the deepest issues of life, and uh, sharing his own personal struggles uh, verbally and now on the page to us as to who am I and where am I going? What is life all about? What, what, what matters uh, most in the context of life? You know, when we stop to think about that and the craziness that the world uh, finds itself in today, there are times that we too begin to wonder and uh, lose our way and begin to trust in all of the wrong things. And there are inherent dangers to all of us that I think that the writer of the book speaks to in his own personal challenge and struggle. And from that, we can extrapolate or bring out of the text some really important lessons for each and every one of us. He will say in this context, I commend joy. It's a simple statement, but it's profound in meaning. How did he mean that? And what does that look like? And what was his intent and purpose in sharing that in the midst of very difficult observations in chapter 7 and 8 about the realities and, quite frankly, the disappointments of life? You don't have to live very long in the face of this earth to realize there are disappointments that come in our days under the sun. There are realities that slap us in the face, and every once in a while, even in our own personal struggles, there's a restlessness that, that enters into us when we understand we have control over absolutely nothing. And then at other times, we believe that we're calling all of the shots, and we're making a plan, and we're going to carry out that plan. We must be very careful not to make the same mistakes as the writer as he shares the path that he has taken in his life and draws it to a rightful conclusion in chapter 12. What we're going to do is kind of bring in some thoughts from chapter 7 and then jump into chapter 8, reflecting on what he said in chapter 7 to try and make sense of, of where he's going with all of this. And I pray, bring it to some rightful conclusions, particularly the conclusion of, I commend joy. What was he really trying to say? Now, it's important before we get started this morning that we understand that in the book of Ecclesiastes, the Koheleth is speaking in different voices, not multiple personalities, but, but from different perspectives, if you would. In some ways, he speaks as a cynic and a pessimist, looking at all that goes wrong on this earth, all of the oppression and evil and injustice that is a part of life under the sun, and he laments that. He's angry with that. He, he wishes to correct all of that, and yet he grows very cynical in that he can't correct it. He can't control it. There's nothing he can do about it. And for that, it leaves him deeply restless in his spirit. But I believe in other texts, he's also speaking as a hedonist. He's speaking as an individual who looks at all of what is broken in this world and comes to the conclusion, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. 
Just make the most of your opportunities. Live life your way. Go for the gusto. Whatever it might be, just live your life. You live and then you die. Might as well make the most of whatever days you have left here on this earth. We've even tried to adopt that into our Christianity with something called Christian hedonism, and it's a confusing lot indeed to me. The truth of the matter is He also speaks in a third voice, and every once in a while we see it reflected in His tone and His conclusions, and He speaks as an apologist, not making an apology, but defending His conclusions, His ultimate conclusion found in verses 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes 12, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, keeping in mind that he writes from those particular perspectives and, and from those particular voices, keep that in mind as we move through the text this morning as he concludes, I commend joy. Father, bless us as we spend some time together in your word. Encourage us as we reflect upon the Kohelis life, as we reflect upon his, his testimony, the things that he shares both good and bad, about the days of his life that have drawn to an, an ending, if you would, towards the end of his life as he reflects upon all of this, and in a sense of urgency gathers together the people of Israel to share his conclusions. And we take to heart what he says. You understand the voice in which he says it. May you give us something positive to take away, and yet may you show us the negative as well. We're prone to fight the same battles and to face the same challenges and have the same inner conflict and turmoil that, that he had and experienced in life. And ultimately, he comes out on the right side. May that be so in our lives as well. So just encourage us as we reflect upon this, this book, his testimony, his experience, and what we can glean from it. And in the end, may we all be able to say, I commend joy. May it be to your praise and glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, he is moving through some of the things that he set out to do, and is very open and honest about it in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. It's set apart in his in his world to make life work on his terms, his succinct words and Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2 were these, and whatever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was the reward for my toil. And I considered all that my hands had done in the toil that I expended in doing, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." As he experiments with so many different things in life, he's come to a conclusion as he begins, and he then takes us on the journey of understanding how he got to that conclusion throughout the text. He has tried money and possessions, and he says that doesn't work. He has tried fame and notoriety, and he says that doesn't work. He has talked about uh, the control over his life and his destiny, and he says that doesn't work. The days under heaven, the days of my life are brief and very few. 
He talks about his, his wisdom, and he even comes to the conclusion that in his human wisdom given divinely by God, it is an element that most of us don't have, he says, that doesn't fix it either. And as he laments all of these things simply not working in his life, he says some pretty astonishing things in chapter 7. I told you we'd return to chapter 7 this week and talk about some of those difficult things that he brings up toward the end of the chapter. But I believe that in many ways in the next couple of chapters, he is asking a simple question, and again, it's under the, under the sun. Who can be trusted? Who can I trust? What can I put my faith in? And, and he's dealing with people in particular in chapter 7 and then again into chapter 8. When he asks himself this, this question about trust that is all encompassed in the arrogance of his personal experience, what we're going to find out is he doesn't trust anybody but himself, and that in the end will prove futile to him as well. Because he will tell us, well, I trusted in myself, but that didn't work out either. And what I decided to do, and all of my energies in pursuit of life, just didn't work. So he asked, who can be trusted. You won't find those words in the text, but you'll find them sprinkled in his words in both chapter 7 and in chapter 8. Reflect with me, if you would, on verse 23 of chapter 7. He says, all of life I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I was trusting in my wisdom, and it didn't get me anywhere. I was trusting in myself, but there are things that I just can't understand or explain about life. In essence, you can hear him say, who can be trusted? So he says in verse 25 of chapter 7, so I turned my heart to know, to search out, and to seek wisdom, and the schemes of things, and to know the wickedness and folly and the foolishness that is madness. You notice after he asked the question numerous times in the text, who can be trusted, he returns to, I can be trusted. I can figure this out. I will turn back to my pursuits, even though they've provided no answers up until this point in time. Isn't that so much like your life and mine? We know it's a dead end. We know there's no answers. And yet we turn to those pursuits time and time and time again, thinking that we'll get different results. That's exactly what he does. He says, who can find it? So as he asks that question again, he turns his heart to know and to search out, to measure folly and foolishness and, and madness and, and trying to figure out the scheme of things. In essence, what he's telling us is I'm going to take a second look at the books, if you would. I'm going to look at the ledger. I'm going to look at every line item. There must have been a miscalculation somewhere. I must have missed something along the way. It's almost like he's looking for every penny and, and some mathematical figure and, and, and coming up with a, a solution to the emptiness that all of these things have provided. He said, I must have missed something. So I gave myself again to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, to try and figure this out. In the context of trust, he, he says in verse 26, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman 
whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another, while calculating all of this to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Historically and otherwise, there are some people who will tell us that he is speaking very misogynistically in the context of this chapter. He's speaking disparagingly of, of women. Surely he can't be saying that, that all women are, are seeking to snare and, and to engage and, and whose hands are, are fetters and, and, and trying to trap you somehow. That can't be what he's saying. Let's put this into context, and this is critically important. There are a couple of different options for our understanding of this text. In Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, we are warned about this seductress woman who, who, who causes us to fall away from the wisdom of the Proverbs into a sense of foolishness. He's not talking about a woman per se, but he's talking about folly and emptiness and foolishness that, that overcomes the wisdom that we have in the midst of the Proverbs. Perhaps he's simply using this as, as a synonym for the pursuit of folly and, 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 and wickedness and foolishness that captures our hearts and minds and takes us from being wise to playing the role of the fool. But I find it's a little bit more than that. Remember, here's a man who again in chapter 2 said, anything I want, I got for myself. We find in the context of chapter 2 that includes many women and the delights of the children of man, male-female relationships sexual prowess and fulfillment, believing that somehow he can trust in another, particularly a female, to, to help him negotiate some of the challenges that he had in life. I, I think he's reflecting personally on the realities of maybe some of the mistakes that he made. You'll find in Scripture that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You want to talk about a man who withheld not his heart from anything? It was this man, and that includes sexuality and relationships to somehow fill a void in life. He's going to tell us you can't trust that either. It's empty. It's fool's gold. As I contemplated that particular perspective, I thought, man, doesn't that speak to our world today? Everything is about sex and gender. If we can just get this right, everything's going to be okay. Fool's gold. Perhaps he's speaking of the bitterness of experience, not of women in particular, but of his pursuit that I had all of these women, and I couldn't find a one that met the deepest needs and longings of my heart. No kidding. But he's not just talking about women. 
He says, even in a thousand men, I only find one that's even worthwhile. What I believe he's saying is, I can only trust myself, none of the rest of you. This one you're thinking, maybe he's talking about me. Yeah, no, he's talking about himself. He said, I looked around, and a thousand men and a thousand women, and there's nobody but me. And this experience of his own particular arrogance being caught up in his life, he says, a woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Regardless of how you interpret that, he is saying there's something that draws you and entices you away from the things that matter most, but the end is not good at all. And the person who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Again, really difficult and challenging words, and we could skip it over altogether. Some commentators do that. They want to touch that misogynistic stuff in a culture that we're we're living in today. Can't you hear him saying, hey, I tried that. And more than all that before me in Jerusalem, a thousand women. No deep and longing satisfaction. For those of you who think that he's speaking against women in general, we could draw your attention to chapter 9, verse 9. And he says, enjoy life with a wife with whom you love all the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun. He's not discounting all women. He's discounting the pursuit of relationships and sexual prowess and sexual conquest to to meet the deepest needs in life and, and to bring some meaning to his life that has become so meaningless. In these verses and then into chapter 8, most would conclude that these are some of the most difficult verses in the context of all of his lecture recorded for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe we're wrong in our interpretation, but if you look at his life, you see him asking, who can I trust? He's concluding that there's nobody on the face of this earth that I can trust. I've been there and I've done that. Behold, pay attention, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. There is no human being, male nor female, that can meet the deepest desires and longings of my heart, that can give me an identity that answers the questions, who am I and where am I going? It's fool's gold. It's emptiness. It reminds me of John as he writes in his epistles, the love of the world, the lust of the flesh, the dead-end roads. As he looks around to ask and answer the question, who can I trust? He said, there's, there's really no one out there, and I do believe the one that he found was him. He was trusting in himself. And yet as he lets this all play out for us and he tells his story, and we ask him at the end of the day, how'd that work out for you? He said, not so good, fear God and keep His commandments, because that's what life is all about. 
Wisdom doesn't work. Money doesn't work. Possessions don't work. Notoriety doesn't work. Fame doesn't work. Relationships don't work to fill the deepest voids of one's life. As you look at what's happening here, he concludes by saying, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. They. He's not talking about women anymore. He's talking about men and women. God made us in His image for His glory, placed us in a perfect environment, and from day one we sought out a different scheme. We didn't like His rules. We didn't like the way He made this all come to pass. And in our scheming, we moved away from the uprightness of the creation of God that was very good to seeking our own stylistic approach to sin. I had a professor a long time ago in grad school, back in the 90s, who used the phrase, stylist approach to sin. He said, every single one of us has our own besetting things that get in the way, and they may not be the same for everybody, but there is always this pull or this draw and this, this, this enticement away from the things that you know inherently are good towards that worship of self and the things of the earth, including the lust of the flesh, including the pride of life and His fame and notoriety, including lust for the things in the world, money, and other things. I've come to the conclusion there's nobody to trust because everybody is scheming, everybody's enticed, everybody's trapped with their own things. What are your things that you are trapped with? I'm going to remind you that it's easy for us to point out to other people what we see they ought to be or what their problem really is. And he warns us in chapter 7, don't be overly righteous. you got your own stuff. But we've created these categories and styles of sin that somehow are acceptable in our Christendom. Anything that takes your attention away from the God of the universe, anything that grabs your trust under the sun is not trustworthy. Be careful, Jesus Himself. Take the, take the moat out of your own eye instead of the speck out of somebody else's. We all stumble and fall in so many ways. And He calls us in chapter 7, verse 14, to consider the work of God. Let's stop a little bit and, and look outside of ourselves. What what is God doing in a lucid moment? He is saying, listen, the world is crooked. Consider the work of God. In the day of prosperity, verse 14, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so man may not find out anything that will be after him. So let's jump down to first verse in chapter 8, then who's like the wise? Is he speaking sarcastically? He is, is he asking a legitimate question? Is he drawing some conclusions of everything that he said in chapter 7? Most likely. And who knows the interpretation of a thing? 
A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. When you gain some perspective on life, when you gain some understanding, when you realize that the rest of this stuff is is vain and like chasing after the wind and it's empty, it changes your countenance. And you stop looking in those places, and you look someone out, somewhere else, maybe giving, maybe giving us a tip-off as to his conclusion, I'm not sure. Then he turns his attention to government and the king's command. And all of these things, there is this tendency for all of us, the writer of Ecclesiastes had this tendency, to ask the question, Why? Why does it have to be this way? Why can't I find fulfillment? Why is life so empty? Why am I always chasing after the wind? Why, why, why? But I want you to know that why is a loaded question. It's a loaded question in the context of there is no answer to why, and he's just told us that. It's a loaded question because even when the evil individual asks why, They're giving a clue as to this notion that somehow inherently in them, they know this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Who told them that? It's planted in their heart. It's a witness of of creation, being created in His image. Because if, in fact, there is no God, then there can be no evil. It is the way it is. Life just happens. It's a fatalistic kind of approach to life. The only reason we ask why sometimes when things go sideways is because we believe that there's somebody somewhere who could have determined different. He's already said it's none of these things that I've tried up until this point in time. In fact, he concludes chapter 7 by asking, why do bad things happen to good people, and why do good things happen to people who aren't very good? Great question. That's a loaded question, because it leads you to a handful of nothing. I don't, I don't know. This is the danger in chapter 7 of being way too quick to draw a conclusion before that conclusion can be known. He says in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. (laughs) You you don't know how this is going to all turn out. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. There's a time for patience and prudence, and where's this going to go, and how is it all going to to work out in, in the end? I say, He's revisiting oppression and evil and injustice. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So he kind of switches gears. Can we trust the king? Can we, can we trust him to, to give some kind of relief? Remember, he was king over Israel in Jerusalem. He says, keep the king's command. He has been delegated with the authority. Pay attention to the things that come from the mouth of the king because of God's oath to Him, because of your oath to God, because God in His divine providence in that particular time in history has placed the king on His throne. Isn't it easy to get caught up in much of what's happening today with our hand-wringing? You don't think God knows what's going on in Western civilization? 
You don't think He's in charge of kings who sit on thrones and the kings who were taken off thrones? You don't think He's sovereign over all of that stuff? He said, consider your oath to God. He is the king. Keep His commands. We can get into a whole big treatise on when are we entitled to break the king's commands, or we can settle in on the fact that God has this for whatever reason. God has this. He says, be not hasty to go from His presence, to get upset and to run away from Him. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for He does whatever He pleases. Be careful not to conspire against the king when you are angry. Be careful. Don't, don't live a life of rebellion and treachery against the throne because he's in charge, and on this earth he'll do whatever he wants to do. <coughs> and for the Christian, we say, why? Why doesn't God do something about the evil king? How do you know he's not? How do you know he's not doing something about the evil king? For the word of the king is supreme. Who has the right to say, who are you and what right do you have? What, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. Do what he tells you to do and you won't suffer the consequences conspire against them, and there are real consequences. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. The one who understands the transcendent nature of God who is over all things and puts kings on thrones and takes them off thrones, the, the God who knows the end from the beginning, the God who is moving all things and orchestrating them to a conclusion that is glorious in nature for those who believe, is the God who will give us wisdom as we deal with the king. He will give us wisdom to know what is just and right. And He will remind us that there is a time for everything, even the evil king who controls everything in life, even though it makes man's trouble lie heavy on him. But even the king does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Neither you nor the king know how all of this comes out. Perhaps he's drawing us back to the place of reminding us that there's a sovereign king over the kings of this earth, and he is glorious and wonderful and marvelous and matchless in everything. Those are the words that you sang this morning. Who's your king? Who's your king? Timely advice, wise advice for a world in, in disarray and spinning out of control today. God, tell me when and tell me why. Help me to exercise patience in the day and age in which we live. Help me to understand that, that you are present, but you are transcendent and holy other, and even this king, no matter how he might rule, is under your authority, even though today the trouble lies heavy on me. No man has power to retain the Spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who were given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart 
to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. We stop to think of what is happening there. We begin to know that from Genesis chapter 3, because of the rebellion against God, we have come up with this scheme to put ourselves charge of the universe and to live life on our terms. And we have forgotten that when man has power over man because they are sinful, it is always to his hurt, both the king and to man, who can you trust? The church is trapped by the foolishness of believing that we have an imminent God who is at our beck and call, who can do whatever He wants to do. And we do have a God who is here and who is present and who is available. But that has been in the Christian church today at the expense of the transcendent glory of God, the notion that He is wholly other, and He does what's right in His own eyes. And we will always live in the midst of knowing what we know in this world and believing that a better world is coming. But when you divorce transcendence from the realities of life, we expect God to come to our rescue and make things work and make us happy. And in essence, all of the book of Ecclesiastes says that's not how God is working. That's not what He's doing. This is for His glory, and He is saying in the context of all of this, no one knows, no one can tell God what to do. Historically, the Roman poet Horace once wrote, seize the day and trust as little as possible tomorrow. (laughs) You have no control. Who has the power to retain the Spirit? for the day of death. Who controls the wind and who knows when their life shall be acquired of them? Anybody here want to take a shot at that? I don't know. Who knows and who has the ability to discharge from war? When you send men to war, they die. You can't send them to war and expect they won't die. You can't send them to war and protect their life. That happens. It is part of war. It is the evil that is under the sun. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. Implying that if there's a wicked king, he will not escape his wickedness. We are all accountable to something outside of ourselves. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurts. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. What things? They have hurt man. Perhaps this is in reference to state funerals and these scoundrels who are given these high and lofty places after a rule that is anything but godless, and and now they're praised in the city, and we know that's that's not how they served. That's not how they lived. That's, That's not how they ruled. It was to our hurt. And yet they're in the holy place, and they're praised in the city where they had done such things. And that's just so empty and meaningless to me. How does that happen? 
We do it sometimes in Christian funerals as well. It's amazing how people become saints the moment they die. (laughs) A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Even funerals ought to be a celebration of King Jesus. It's all about these men juxtaposed against the righteous who are forgotten, and there's no remembrance of those former things. Remember chapter 1? You move off into oblivion, and they become a star, a constellation of history. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. We hear this chant in our culture today, and perhaps this is what the Koheleth was trying to get to. Life must be fair and equitable. And he says, it didn't work out that way. It doesn't happen that way. There are no rules and standards, and up is down, and down is up, and black is white, and white is black, and there is no hope. Scale back your hope. There's a hopeless situation happening. We must simply live our lives and take it. There's nothing we can do about it. (coughs) And when a sinner does evil and is not experiencing justice speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Now, listen carefully. It was already set to do evil. Remember the schemes at the end of chapter 7? It just enforces those schemes and gives him a greater acting out capacity in their evil. Wouldn't you just love to send this passage to the powers that be today, particularly district attorneys? (laughs) Don't do anything about the evil and see how that goes for you. It's great wisdom. The book of Ecclesiastes, though a sinner does evil a hundred times, his life is prolonged, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Here's, Here's what I know. They seem to be getting away with it, but they're not getting away with it. And this is that moment of lucidity. God knows this, and the one who fears God will experience this. And nobody will be able to prolong their days like a shadow and get away with it forever because they don't fear God. And who is ultimately responsible? Is it the king on the throne, or is it the sovereign king over the king on the throne? There seems to be some clarity that's beginning to creep into our mind as he moves closer and closer to some of the conclusions. And in essence, he's saying in verses 12 and 13, do not lose your hope no matter how bad this world gets. The wicked don't win. Perhaps that ought to be the last thing you say to yourself before you fall asleep at night. The wicked don't win. God is on the throne. I need to remind myself of that often throughout the day, in the morning, and in the evening. When life goes sideways and we think it's not fair, we must realize that our experience is just a drop in the ocean of experience. There's always people who are struggling in ways that you never have. 
There will be always people who are blessed in ways that you'll never be blessed. Let God sort that all out, and you and I just learned that I can't be the only one that I trust because that doesn't work out either. Who can you trust? There is a vanity as he winds the chapter down that takes place on earth, a chasing after the wind. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous, and this is vanity. This is the way it ought to go. These are the wicked, and these are the good, and this ought to be the, the end game of their life. And he said, I, I, it's too deep for me. I don't understand why it's almost backwards sometimes. I, 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 don't, I don't get that. I don't understand why wicked people seem to be blessed and righteous people seem to experience the judgment that should be upon the wicked. This is empty. So he says in verse 15, and I commend joy, enjoyment, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. The application to that is immense. Is he sarcastic? Is he being hedonistic, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die? Is he poking his finger in the eye of the cynic? Sure, it's going to keep getting worse and, and worse and worse, but, but don't worry about it. You'll die before it gets really bad. What, what, what is he really saying here? In essence, I think he's calling our attention to the things of our everyday life that we can find some kind of enjoyment and understand that these are gifts from God. And to be captured by all of the other stuff that's happening in our world will create a restlessness in our spirit that leads to no good thing because no one can find out the beginning from the end. I believe this is a positive statement. Not all commentators agree. But I believe that what he's saying is, I have to stop fussing about all this other stuff that consumes me because I'm missing out on the little blessings in life the little enjoyments that come my way every single day, those little things that I take for granted, God forbid. So he says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes ever sleep. Simple confession. I don't always sleep well at night, and often it's because I'm fussing about things I can't control and not finding joy and contentment in the things that God has given me. How about you guys when it comes to politics and the king? How about you guys when it comes to justice and the wicked? How about you guys when it comes to law enforcement? How about you guys when it comes to a new and a fresh take? How about you guys when it comes to your stuff and your wisdom and your relationships and on and on and on and on? It keeps me up at night. And then I saw all the work of God. I think that's very similar to what he says in 713, consider the work of God. 
Man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. There are no easy answers. Life is hard. Life is short. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. You have no control over most of what happens in life. And even though a wise man claims to know, he doesn't know. How many times have I played the fool professing myself to be wise? I got it all figured out. In fact, if I stay up long enough at night with no sleep, I can get it all figured out. And I'm listening to a man who had skills and abilities beyond my capacity, and he says, as fool's gold, it doesn't work that way. So when I ask myself, who can I trust? There's nothing here. So fear God and keep His commandments, because that's, that's what life is all about. The finality, the Kohelis conclusion informs us that the problem, the problems of life defy solutions. More time, greater intelligence, better methods, a new team of researchers, none of these is the answer. The problem lies in the difference between divine and human. Before between God and, and even the brightest and the best of all of His creatures. So when it comes to who can be trusted, there is only one place to go and one thing to be reminded of. And in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, what settles his heart and his mind is this notion that there is a time and a season for everything under the heaven. But it's not my time, Pastor Jim. It's not my plan, Pastor Jim. It's not how I thought this would turn out. We're not in control of that. Even in our wisdom, we're fools to think that we are. But He, but he has made everything beautiful in His time. And also, He has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. These are the words in a lucid moment of the apologist that says only God knows this, and then he goes for five more chapters and tries to figure it out. He is so much like you and I. I perceive that there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. For this is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it, so people fear before Him. I commend joy. I commend joy. A wise man indeed. It reminds me of a phrase that we've used time and time again in prior messages. What's left is Coram Deo. Living my life every day, every moment, every circumstance, every situation, every time, every season. And every time I ask the question, who can be trusted? Coram Deo. We live our lives before a holy and righteous God. 
characterized by that righteousness. And at night, we lay our head on the pillow. We believe that God has got this. Everything's going to be okay. May it be so in our lives, Father. It's so elusive. It's so fleeting. It's so chasing after the wind. Relieve us of our need to know. Call us to the privilege of knowing the God who knows the end from the beginning and has made everything beautiful in its own time. As the writer dismantles our notions of what and who to trust, may we turn our eyes to you. We learn to be still and know that you're God in all and every circumstance. We learn to fear God and keep His commandments. May we finally understand that's what life is all about. Teach us to enjoy the little things from the hand of God. For your glory alone, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.